Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History is a brand new book with lots of weird and wildly entertaining stories that haven't been covered on this podcast. Stories like the rise of everybody's favorite painter of the pretty, Claude Monet, and how all those water lilies and haystacks were actually subversive badassery. How some late 19th and early 20th century women may possibly be the first abstract artists. And what do toenail clippings and a chunk of Caroline Kennedy's birthday cake have to do with one of Andy Warhol's most enduring legacies? Art Curious, the book, will be released on September 15, 2020, but you can pre-order now to reserve your copy. Pre-order links are available in the show notes or at our website, artcuriouspodcast.com slash book. That's artcuriouspodcast.com slash book. This season of the Art Curious Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Anchor Light. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com to learn all about their artist residency programs, exhibitions, and more. The following episode contains a discussion of sexual violence. Listeners who might be sensitive to such topics, please use discretion. And if you or someone you know is a victim of sexual violence, you can seek safe and confidential help by calling the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. Hi, everybody. Jennifer here and back with you today to share the next installment in our interseason listeners' favorites, a roundup of your favorite Art Curious episodes from our last seven seasons. Thank you again to the many who took our listener favorites survey back in July to choose your top five personal favorites, which we'll be sharing with you to tide you over until the next season, our eighth, which airs later this fall. Today, it's one of my own personal favorite episodes, another airing from our shock art season, this time on Artemisia Gentileschi's Judith Beheading Holofernes. In conjunction with the survey, I asked some of you to write in and tell me if you had particular thoughts on the podcast or specific episodes that you'd be willing to share with our audiences, and I was so grateful to receive them. Today's first is from Liz Campbell in Melbourne, Australia, who writes in part, As a rape victim with little opportunity for real revenge, Gentileschi channeled her pent-up rage to create this masterpiece. I see this painting as Gentileschi's opportunity to imagine her revenge on the hurt and pain, the insult and the emotional devastation she had to manage after being raped and tortured when she was just 17 years old. The power of revenge must have been so strong when people saw this work by Gentileschi that for a long time it was relegated to a place that would protect people from facing reality. Thank you, Liz, for those insightful and meaningful notes. I really loved receiving that. Now for a great voicemail from one of our other listeners, Christine. My name is Christine Keener. I'm a professor and an art historian, and I teach in Sarasota, Florida. I'm contacting you because I want to thank you for the work you do. Uh, In particular, I want to thank you for your podcast on Artemisia Gentileschi's Judith Slaying Holofernes. Um, That is one of my favorite paintings. I wanted to thank you because I use this podcast in my class where I study uh, heroic rape imagery. It is an unfortunate topic that has to be addressed, but as I'm sure you're aware, there have been many, many uh, images of what are termed by 
old school art historians as heroic rapes in the fine arts. In a class that I teach, gender and sexuality in the early modern period, after the Me Too uh, movement began, and of course, Time's Up, I felt that it was beholden to me and other professors to finally address these works beyond just looking at their formal elements, beyond discussing the glorious paint or the wonderful compositions, but really getting down to the messages that these send to today's audiences, male and female, and also possibly sent to the the male and female audiences of the times in which they were created. So one of the things that I do with this particular podcast that you created is I assign the students to listen to it along with three peer-reviewed articles that I, well, one's a book chapter, that I select for them to read for our discussion on this topic. So they listen to your podcast, they read Diane Wolfthal's Images of Rape, they read Edward Owalski's Expanding the Litany for Susanna and the Elders, and then their favorite article, those that choose to read the articles, is Jean Morgan Zoraki's The Gentileschi Danae, A Narrative of Rape. Most of them just listen to your podcast, I'm pretty sure. But some of them actually do the readings, and then they come to class on the day that we're looking at this imagery. But one of the things I wanted to thank you for is that in your podcast, I think you make Artemisia's feelings of betrayal and horror and anger come to life for the students. The students are also assigned the uh, court report, which you read a portion of, but I think that you reading it out loud to them rather than reading it to themselves really makes those uh, feelings that Artemisia certainly felt sink in to their young consciousness. Um, I've been told by students both in public and private that this particular day that we look at the heroic rape is the most impactful that they've experienced in their time in my courses and sometimes even in their time at my institution. So again, I just want to thank you for um, making art history and making art accessible to all learners and all levels of interest. Keep up the good work. Christine, I value each and every comment that I get from listeners, and it means a lot to know that this show is being used by professors and art instructors. The fact that it is being used in this way alongside those excellent readings that you noted is humbling at the very least. And thank you for what you are doing to cover the topic of the heroic rape, as you called it, and for doing so in a very thoughtful and caring way for your students as well as for the art. Thanks, too, to Lillian Milgram, who is our next listener commentator. My name's Lillian Milgram, and I currently live in Washington, D.C. I wouldn't miss one episode of Art Curious. As an artist and historical fiction author, I learn so much from every single episode. And the way that Jennifer tells the story about these paintings and these works of art is absolutely riveting and enlightening. I love Gentileschi's Judith slaying Holofernes because it spoke to what a lot of women go through, even in our day and age. I had no idea about the um, history of this painting, even though I was familiar with the painting. So thanks very much, Art Curious. And now, without further ado, here's your number four episode, one of your top five listener favorites. Before we begin, remember that this episode is a little sensitive in terms of topics of sexual discussion and violence, so please take care when listening, and thank you. The hashtag MeToo movement. It's a huge part of what's happening all around the world right now and in nearly every facet of society. 
women the world over are speaking up about their experiences with abuse, inequality, and injustice, and stepping up to make a difference, and with luck, time, and hope, some change to go along with it. Because we all know that things have been wrong for a very, very long time. There haven't been many avenues up to this point for women to make their voices heard, to fight against systems of dominance, repression. But even in the midst of the most trying circumstances and the most harrowing life events, some have been able to stand out and make a lasting statement about their pain, their history, and their wishes for retribution. Some of the best examples of this just happen to be completed in oil paint upon a huge six-foot canvas. Now that's quite the statement. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today, we are continuing our all-new series of episodes dissecting single works of art that shook their contemporary worlds with one of the bloodiest, most gruesome works of the Baroque period. And it's all about womanly wrath and awesome revenge. Artemisia Genaleski's Judith Slaying Holofernes. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Artemisia Gentileschi was born in July of 1593 in Rome as the eldest child of Tuscan painter Orazio Gentileschi and his wife, Prudentia Montone. Like many of the female artists that we've discussed in the Art Curious podcast in the past, specifically Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Sofonisba Anguissola in episodes 3, 37, and 20, respectively, Artemisia had art-related opportunities that were often off-limits for other women and girls of her time period simply because she had a dad who was an artist and who was happy to help inculcate his daughter in the ways of art. And so, alongside her younger brothers, she began painting in her father's workshop at a very early age. And her father, Orazio, recognized her talent quickly, and so he capitalized upon it. Orazio decided to give her one-on-one lessons in drawing, color mixing, and painting, and by the time she turned 19, he had already begun boasting about town of his daughter's professional artistic ability, one inspired by another local art great rolling around Rome during this time period, famed Baroque artist Michelangelo Merisi da Caravaggio, known to us today as Caravaggio. Orazio and Caravaggio were close friends, and it is entirely possible that Artemisia herself met and even worked with Caravaggio at some point during her own artistic development. She admired and imitated his stark lighting, his dark and dense color palette, and his choice of biblical subject matter, which, as we'll see, plays a key role in our discussion today. But it wasn't Caravaggio himself that would end up altering Artemisia Gentileschi's life forever. Instead, it was an entirely different artist who would have a long-lasting effect on her and who would directly influence her most famous and infamous painting. It all happened before Artemisia was even out of her teen years. When she was just 17 years old, Orazio hired a new painter to work under his wing, assisting Orazio directly in his commissions and, even more crucially, acting as a painting tutor to Artemisia herself. This man, was Agostino Tassi, a man who was a highly rated trompe l'oeil or illusionistic painter, whose work is considered fairly unimportant today. 
but at the time, he was kind of the man, and Artemisia must have been excited that she had the ability to work so closely with him. But she had no idea that she was about to get far, far too close to Tossi, and without her permission. It all seemed so simple and so innocent at the very beginning. On one fateful day in 1611, Artemisia was hanging out in her bedroom when she noticed Agostino Tossi lingering near her doorway. When she no doubt said hello and questioned his presence there, he replied that he was simply admiring a painting on her bedroom wall. But very quickly after that, things escalated. According to Artemisia herself, Tossi forced himself into her room and came onto her, making direct and unwanted offers of sex. When she balked, Tassi grew desperate and wasn't about to let his opportunity slip away. I'll let Artemisia Gentileschi's voice continue the narrative. About the next moments, Artemisia recounted, quote, He then threw me onto the edge of the bed, pushing me with a hand on my breast, and he put a knee between my thighs to prevent me from closing them. Lifting my clothes, he placed a hand with a handkerchief on my mouth to keep me from screaming, unquote. And with that, Tassi proceeded to rape her. She continued, quote, I felt a strong burning and it hurt very much, but because he held my mouth, I could not cry. However, I tried to scream as best as I could. I scratched his face and I pulled his hair, and before he penetrated me again, I grasped his penis so hard that I even removed a piece of flesh, unquote. But she couldn't stop him. After Tassi finally let her go, Artemisia rushed to a nearby drawer and pulled out a knife, screaming to Tassi, quote, I'd like to kill you with this knife because you have dishonored me. And he mocked her by opening up his coat and proclaiming, quote, Here I am, as if he were just right there, available to be attacked. Artemisia did move ahead and attempted to attack Tossi, but he shielded himself, sustaining a very minor wound. If Tossi hadn't protected himself, Artemisia later noted that she might very well have killed him. What happened next is terrible in its own right. Distraught at the assault she just experienced, Artemisia was crying and hysterical, and Tossi attempted to settle her down. How did he do this? He grabbed her hand and promised to marry her. Never mind that he was already married, but that's another tale altogether. With this promise, Artemisia did find herself slightly pacified, so much so that she was able to continue a physical relationship with her assailant. As she later noted, quote, I did feel calmer, and with this promise, he induced me later on to yield lovingly, many times to his desires, since many times he also promised and reconfirmed that promise to me, unquote. Artemisia was young, very young, and was assaulted and most likely not thinking clearly due to the shock of the circumstance and she assumed that Tossi was telling the truth when he promised to make good on the loss of her virginity by making her a respectable wife. Alas, though, he never did. And with this broken promise, in came Orazio Gentileschi to the rescue, filing a charge in 1612 that Agostino Tossi raped his daughter months prior. And with that began another nightmarish phase in Artemisia's life, as she endured a seven-month-long court battle that put Artemisia herself on trial practically as much as Tossi. The trial of Agostino Tassi lasted a grueling seven months and included hundreds of hours of witness examinations and testimonies from friends, tenants, and artists to build a picture of the Gentileschi household and Artemisia's relationship with Tassi himself. 
In the court transcripts, Artemisia was depicted as a shy teenager who rarely left the house, while Tassi was painted as possibly even worse than he actually was. Exhibit A. Several testimonies accused him of murdering his wife years before, something which Tassi did not do, but still made little attempt to disprove. This insouciant attitude was also directed at the rape charges, which he similarly did not attempt to deny. That being said, the trial still dragged on, and with it was dragged Artemisia herself. For example, to ensure that she was being truthful in her accusations, the judges ordered the use of a torture device called a sibyl, wherein her fingers were tightly tied with ropes and pulled together painfully. The idea being that if someone was lying, they wouldn't want to subject themselves to such pain. But Artemisia Gentileschi remained defiant as she stared down her rapist who sat across the courtroom from her. She repeated her testimony again and again as court officials pulled the ropes tighter. Eventually, the judge found her to be honest and found Tassi guilty of his crime. He was sentenced to five years as a galley slave. But here's another infuriating part. Agostino Tassi never served any time. He was a highly sought-after artist, after all, and one of his main clients was Pope Innocent X, who once described Tassi as one of the only men who had never disappointed him. Innocent II appreciated the fact that Tosi had embraced his sinful acts and had not attempted to deny his wrongdoings. That was grace. And thus, Innocent came to Tosi's rescue, and so Tosi kept his status as a free man, enjoying a long career in Rome while Artemisia Gentileschi fled Rome two days after the trial and relocated, purportedly for marriage purposes, to Florence. All of the direct quotations I've shared from Artemisia, especially pertaining to the actual account of the attack, are part of the public documentation of what followed from the trial of Agostino Tassi, and are all available to read and be discussed. I got my transcription from art historian Mary Gerard's 1989 masterpiece on Artemisia herself. It's hard to read. It's probably in many ways even harder to hear someone like me narrate it out loud. But I think it's important to share the words from a victim or survivor and to hear the testimony of those wrongs that were done to their minds and their bodies. And so, though this has been more graphic in its telling than most Art Curious episodes, I feel very strongly that sharing this knowledge will lead to a greater understanding and even greater appreciation of Artemisia's masterwork, her Judith Slang Holofernes, completed around 1620. But even today, it isn't an easy or pretty work of art to behold. And its explicit ties to Artemisia's violent assault come to light after this break. I believe in having clean and environmentally friendly options, so I like to support companies who innovate products that break the norm and help clean up both my daily routine and the planet. And that's why I love Native. Native deodorant is not only awesome at fighting odor and wetness, it is also made better with ingredients that you can actually recognize, like coconut oil and shea butter. It's also vegan, never tested on animals, and is committed to plastic-free packaging, which is so important to me as I've been working hard to minimize plastic in my life. Their all-new, just-launched paperboard package scents like coconut and vanilla, charcoal, and citrus and herbal musk are all aluminum-free, and they'll keep you smelling and feeling fresh all day long. I personally can't wait to get my hands on their lavender and rose scent. 
Native is risk-free to try because every product comes with free shipping within the U.S. and free 30-day returns and exchanges. See why so many people love Native and check out their over 14,000 five-star reviews. So do what I did and make the switch to Native today by going to nativedeo.com slash artcurious or use promo code artcurious at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash artcurious or use promo code artcurious at checkout for 20% off your first order. There's a world of entertainment options out there. And by that, I mean there's a lot of compelling international shows you may be missing out on. It's time to burst the domestic TV bubble and check out Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a commercial-free streaming service that's rooted in British television. It's home to sophisticated and artful storytelling with top-rated mysteries, addicting dramas, heartfelt comedies, and so much more. Unlike other British streaming services, Acorn TV has content from Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and beyond. If you're a fan of quirky British comedy, then the other one is a must-watch. It follows two sisters from very different worlds who had no idea that the other existed until their father drops dead. And for you Downton Abbey fans out there, the other one features a hilarious performance from beloved Siobhan Finneran. I always find something new to watch on Acorn TV because it's loaded with thousands of hours of binge-worthy content. You can stream it on all your favorite devices for just $5.99 a month. Recently, I've been loving to watch 1900 Island, in which four families are essentially going back in time to live on this deserted island as if they were living in the year 1900. So escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Try Acorn TV for free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code ARTCURIOUS. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code ARTCURIOUS, to get your first 30 days for free. Welcome back to Art Curious. After Artemisia's trial against Agostino Tassi was completed, she moved quickly to Florence, where she enjoyed significant success in the arts, even attaining a milestone when she became the first woman accepted into the Academy of Arts and Drawing. Surviving letters from this period record her successes and relationships within the Florentine art community as she worked diligently to produce commissioned paintings. But there was one work that she began fairly early in her sojourn to Florence, a painting that challenged her, flummoxed her, and called her back repeatedly as she worked on it over and over over the course of seven years. The subject matter that Artemisia Gentileschi chose in her most famous painting was a tale that was millennia old, one that had been portrayed countless times by many artists before her, including an iteration made famous by her father's old pal, Caravaggio. It visually recounts a key moment from the apocryphal Old Testament book of Judith. Judith was a daring Jewish widow who takes matters into her own hands to protect the Israelites from a marauding army of Assyrians, led by a fearsome general named Holofernes. Holofernes intended to kill the Israelites, and so the night before the purported battle, Judith sneaks into the general's tent and ingratiates herself to him, all while plying him with alcohol until he becomes so intoxicated that he falls asleep. And then, with the assistance of a handmaiden, Judith beheads Holofernes as he lay asleep. When the Assyrian army discover the corpse of their general, the siege is called off and the army retreats, thereby ensuring the Israelites' safety and Judith's legend as a true biblical hero and all-around badass. 
It makes sense that Artemisia Gentileschi would find this such an intriguing subject matter for a painting. Anchored by the fact that Tossi never faced true justice for his crimes against her, and embarrassed and humiliated by the rigors of the trial in Rome, no one could blame her for wanting to exact a little wish fulfillment via a safe biblical tale. But Gentileschi's final image was altogether shocking when it was first revealed, and shocking even now to modern-day viewers, because of a couple different reasons. But before we get into that, we need to describe how Judith was typically represented in visual art. For centuries, Judith was the epitome of the virtuous woman of God, the whole package. A gorgeous widow, unwilling to sully herself with a second marriage, God forbid, and who cared far more about the well-being of her people and her faith over her own personal safety. In famous Judith depictions by Renaissance greats Sandro Botticelli and Lucas Cranach the Elder, Judith is stylish and poised. And the only thing that really differentiates her from the other women in each artist's oeuvre is that she happens to have a severed head of a man either in her hands or close by, as in the Botticelli work. Something which sometimes causes art historical confusion, as Salome, the New Testament temptress who requested John the Baptist's head on the platter, is also depicted fairly similarly, if not slightly sexier. Anyhow, the point is this. Judith equals virtuous lady doing the dirty work for God and the greater good. And most of the time, the realities of the dirty work, i.e. the actual beheading of Holofernes, was really left off screen, so to speak. You just have the aftermath, that severed head, as evidence. But this changed with the dawn of the Baroque period in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Baroque art was all about action and drama. Big contrasts between light and shadow, high emotion, big expression. Caravaggio himself was a master of this. And his own take on Judith from 1598 is one of the paintings that actually shows Judith in process of beheading the general, whose eyes are open in shock and mouth frozen in a scream as a spray of blood stains his pillow. But even here, Judith herself is all lithe and beautiful, and she's approaching her job with a delicacy that is at odds with her actions. All you can see is this teeny tiny little wrinkle in her forehead as she commits her murder. These are the traditional images of Judith that Artemisia inherited from art history, but she wasn't about to take the opportunity to create just another bland and proper Judith. No. Her heroine was one born from her own grief and anger. Her Judith is all fury and muscle. On the right side of her canvas, Artemisia paints Judith clad in a gold gown, caught between the shadows and the action of beheading Holofernes on the bed in front of her, held down by an equally young and determined handmaiden. Judith's dress slips down her left shoulder as crimson blood spurts from the neck of the slain general, and it gets everywhere, staining the sheets, spraying Judith's dress, and marring her hands as she holds the dagger tightly. What's fascinating is that Judith's face does not reflect the horror of the act. Instead, it's purposeful. It's focused. Her brow is furrowed, but with surety, not the delicate unease of Caravaggio's Judith. Artemisia knows what she is doing and why and she is all in, conquering the overwhelming large body of Holofernes and soon to be victorious. For the first time, really, Judith is shown as an active, meaningful participant in the assassination story that made her a legend. And it ain't easy, 
For any other Judith murder scene, including that of Caravaggio, Judith and her maid are usually shown at somewhat of a distance from Holofernes, leaning back or away, or keeping themselves and their clothing pristine in the literal face of gore. But not Genelesky's women. Both Judith and her maid have their sleeves rolled up, muscles flexing, using their combined strength as much as Judith's weapon to inflict that fatal blow. It's gruesome. And it's more realistic. And at the time, its depiction of violence at the hands of women painted by a woman was terrifying. And to many, it just wasn't okay. As if this work wasn't surprising and powerful enough, there's another element that brings it to an even more fascinating level. Artemisia Gentileschi's Judith has stood out to keen-eyed viewers and art historians throughout the years because she looks a little familiar. In fact, Judith bears a striking resemblance to the artist herself. And upon further inspection, Holofernes looks familiar too, as he also resembled a real live person. I don't need to tell you who, as I'm sure you've already guessed. Yup. Artemisia appears to have modeled her Holofernes upon the visage of Augustino Tassi, her rapist. Now, it is not unusual for artists, especially women, to use their own bodies as the model for female figures, given the fact that studying from the nude model was forbidden to women for most of Western art history on into the modern era. But combining her image with that of Tassi is no accident, and it catapults her painting into being more than a painting. It becomes a form of autobiography. Under the guise of quote-unquote safe subject matter from the Bible as vetted by visual artists for centuries, Artemisia Gentileschi was able to work out her complicated feelings towards her past in a way that remarkably mirrors the Judith legend itself. Tassi, a powerful and wealthy male, came to her and violently took her honor, quote-unquote, similar to how Holofernes, a wealthy and powerful male, came to Judith's home and attempted to ransack her city. And on canvas at least, Artemisia was able to exact control over the outcome of the situation in a way that just wasn't possible in real life. Remember her own testimony about the events of the attack, as she outlined during the trial. She rushed to a drawer, brandished a knife, and yelled to Tassi, quote, I'd like to kill you with this knife because you have dishonored me, unquote. Tassi, of course, protected himself, and Artemisia ended her recounting with one simple statement, quote, Otherwise, I might have killed him. Judith slaying Holofernes represents a different ending for Artemisia Gentileschi an ending that shows women as victorious over powerful men and justice being served. Artemisia's attacker may not have served his sentence, but Artemisia was not going to let the world forget her abuse. She would not stay silent, and her bravery and dedication to making her voice heard loud and clear is still affecting to us today. Next time on Art Curious, it's your third favorite episode of all time, a two-parter, and it is, hint, hint, our very first episode ever. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Kelsey Breen. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daveraineydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video. Content. Ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. 
The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at various stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. Follow the donate links on our website for more details, where you can also find images, information, contact details, and links to our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at artcuriouspod. Lastly, if you love Art Curious and want even more of what we do, you'll be thrilled to know that I am available for lectures, live podcast events, and other gigs. So contact me if you'd like me to visit your museum, college, university, or elsewhere. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore your favorite episodes of the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.